I encourage you to turn with me in your Bible to Mark chapter 10. Mark chapter 10, we're going to look at verses 13 through 31 this morning. Now this passage occurs as Jesus is coming from Galilee in the north where He's been ministering. He's heading down to Jerusalem for the final time. He's ministering as He goes. This is on the way. He's back in Judea. And beginning in verse 13, we read, Then they brought little children to Him that He might touch them. But the disciples rebuked those who brought them. And when Jesus saw it, He was greatly displeased and said to them, Let the little children come to Me and do not forbid them. For of such is the kingdom of God. Assuredly, I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God as a little child will by no means enter it. And he took them up in his arms, laid his hands on them, and blessed them. Now as he was going out on the road, one came running, knelt before him, and asked him, Good teacher, what shall I do that I may inherit eternal life? So Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good but one, that is God. You know the commandments, do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and your mother. And he answered and said to him, Teacher, all these things I have kept from my youth. Then Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, One thing you lack, go your way, sell whatever you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, take up the cross and follow me. But he was sad at this word, and went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. Then Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how hard it is for those who have riches to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were astonished at his words. But Jesus answered again and said to them, Children, how hard it is for those who trust in riches to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And they were greatly astonished, saying among themselves, Who then can be saved? But Jesus, looking at them, said, With men it is impossible, but not with God. For with God all things are possible. Then Peter began to say to him, See, we have left all and followed you. So Jesus answered and said, Assuredly, I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or lands for my sake and the gospels who shall not receive a hundredfold now in this time, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last first. Amen. Brothers and sisters, beloved of our Lord, at first glance, this passage might not seem entirely appropriate for a day marked by the joy of baptism. After all, it features a gentleman who rushes up to Jesus, eager to enter the kingdom of God, who goes away sad disappointed and unfulfilled. It leads Jesus to tell His disciples how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God, leaving them astonished. On the face of it, not exactly a text of celebration, but it is, in fact, a text of celebration. If you see 
the grace of what Jesus is saying in this text. But before we get into that, notice that this text speaks of the kingdom of God. Children, what exactly is the kingdom of God? The kingdom of God is that which Israel of old typified. It was what the earthly kingdom of Israel sort of demonstrated to us, and which Jesus came to inaugurate, to really start, to begin. Now, we don't today see the kingdom yet in all of its glory. We'll see that when Jesus comes back. When He comes back and He removes everyone who remains in rebellion against Him. When He comes back and purifies all of His people and perfects them, then we'll see the kingdom in all its fullness because the kingdom, the kingdom is the complete reliance of God's people on Him as their King. The complete and perfect following of God's people after the one who holds all authority in heaven and on earth. That's what the kingdom of God is. We begin to see that even now when we enter into it by trusting in Jesus as our Savior and our Lord. When we do that, we become citizens of the kingdom. We gain entrance into that kingdom by faith. But we need to recognize that kingdom, though it bears a lot of similarity with the kingdoms of this world, it's a unique kingdom. It's a kingdom unlike any nation or power this world has ever known. This kingdom does not play by our rules. It doesn't follow our expectations. It obliterates our common standards. And that is the fact that's at the heart of what Jesus says here. Jesus in this text reveals the unexpected standards of His kingdom, especially of entering that kingdom. And the first way He reveals the unexpected standards of His kingdom is by commending the imitation of its simplest citizens. Look at our setting. Again, as I said, Jesus is coming down from Galilee to Jerusalem. He's gotten back to Judea. And as he's gotten there, or as he's gone on the way, he's stopped at various places to teach, to explain the truth of the kingdom, to explain the fullness of what he's doing. And most of the crowd that has been gathering around him, they're, they're adults. Some are his disciples. They've come to recognize that he's the Messiah. Others, they're just curious onlookers. They want to see what all the fuss is about. For the most part, they're adults. But then suddenly, people begin bringing children. Now, these children are not 10-year-olds, 12-year-olds. One of the parallel accounts clearly shows that these are, these are babies. They're children the age of Asher or a little Lacey. You see, these parents, they brought their children because they recognized that Jesus is special through His authoritative teaching, through the power of the works that He's done. They've seen that He is the Messiah. He's the one that God has promised to send. And they're Jewish. They're the people of God's covenant. They've been waiting for God to send the one who would fulfill all of His covenant promises. Seeing that in Jesus, they want Him to touch their children. They want Him to bless their children. They want the one who's come to fulfill the promises to touch the ones on whom the promises have been or to whom the promises have been given. And we can understand that. That's what baptism is. Bringing our children to Jesus' feet receiving the sign and seal of His promises upon the children who don't yet even know what it all means. 
That's what they're doing. But the disciples, they see these children being brought and they're not happy. Because, I mean, Jesus is important. His teaching is essential. And what do these kids know about his teaching? They can't understand it. They, you know how kids are. They're going to squirm. They're going to distract. They're going to yell. It's going it's to distract from Jesus' teaching. There's all these people taking notes. Don't get in the way of that. So the disciples start rebuking these eager parents. There's a time and a place, they tell them, and this is not it. Maybe wait until Jesus is done teaching and then come. But remember, these are covenant children. The children of Israel. The children who, with the sacraments of their age, have been baptized. That's what circumcision was in that age. At eight days old, they received the sign and seal of the same covenant promises that our children receive. Let that sink in a minute, because what these disciples are doing in rebuking these parents, that's not something unfamiliar to our age. Ever been in a church where a, a baby cries in the middle of the sermon, and, and the minister stops and stares, shaming them into leaving? Ever been holding a fussy baby and you start to see disapproving looks around you? Or what about those congregations that are so common today where they have children's church? Just at that time where the, the worship service is coming to its climax, where God's Word is going to be proclaimed to us both to convict and to comfort, the children are invited to leave, to go away, come back later. That's exactly what was happening here. It's not something that we've never seen. It's not something that we might not have been tempted by at times. Don't those folks know that we have a nursery? You'd think they could get out of here a little quicker. But look at Jesus' response in verse 14. He was greatly displeased. Some translations render that he was indignant and he rebuked his disciples let those children come don't forbid them of such is the kingdom of God you kick out the children Jesus is saying and you remove model citizens of my kingdom in fact he commends those little babies those children in arms for imitation you want to be good members of my kingdom no, beyond that. Do you want to enter my kingdom? Be like them. What does that mean? What are the childlike qualities that are required for entering the kingdom of God? Remember, these are infants we're talking about here. Certainly, Jesus isn't exalting wisdom or knowledge. It's not about what you know. He's not raising high the example of works. They haven't done anything noteworthy. Scripture is clear that even our youngest children aren't innocent, so he's not commending holiness. What is it that we're called to imitate when Jesus says, I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God as a little child will by no means enter it. It's been a blessing being in town for the last couple of days. I get to see my grandson. Notice something about that. 
with this text ringing in my head. I see Sam holding little Asher. And then he jumps up to get something, still holding little Asher. And he bends over and he moves around. Kid doesn't even wake up. Absolutely at ease, absolutely comfortable, absolutely confident in the one who is holding him. Just like every one of us was when dad was holding us as babies. See, that, that's what Jesus is commending. An absolute trust, an absolute confidence that doesn't second guess, doesn't question, doesn't doubt whether our heavenly Father is trustworthy, whether He is true, whether He is enough. Little Asher, he doesn't, he doesn't try to grab on and hold. No, no, no. You pick up a cat, they'll do that, right? They'll dig in the claws. They don't trust you. But those little babies do. That's what Jesus is showing us. That trusting faith. When we see Asher laying in Sam's arm, when we see Lacey in Caleb's arms, that's an image of the trust, of the confidence, of the faith that we are called to have in our Savior. We do well to bring our children forward for baptism, no doubt about it. It's a sign and seal of God's covenant promises which we are commanded to give to them. But we mustn't stop with bringing them forward for baptism. We are called to continue bringing them before the Lord, seeking His blessing upon them, enabling them to hear the voice of the Savior so that even as they trust in us when we're holding them as infants, they grow up learning to trust their Savior. Learning that whatever He says is absolutely true and certain. And no matter who says contrary, no matter who says otherwise, they're wrong. Because my Father said something different. Because my Savior, He's the one I trust. That's what we're called to cultivate in them. That's what we're called to model before them. Don't second-guess the Lord. Don't think you have to add on to what He... No, we trust Him absolutely and without question. That's the only way into the kingdom. But then having embraced and blessed these simple citizens of His kingdom, Jesus arises. It's time to move on. It's time to continue toward Jerusalem. But just then a man rushes up and falls to his knees before Jesus. Now, the parallel passages indicate that this is a younger man, He's very likely under 30. He's also a, a man known as a ruler, probably meaning he has some position of authority in the synagogue. He comes before Jesus and he implores him. He says, good teacher, what shall I do that I might inherit eternal life? What shall I do? What do I need to accomplish? What do I need? Theologically, he's way off base. But notice how Jesus answers. First of all, he challenges him just a little bit. He says, why do you call me good? There's only one who's good, and that's God. He challenges that idea of goodness. Because goodness, in the light of what our Father has taught us, is perfection. It's absolute and utter sinlessness. And then he gives him the answer he's looking for. What must you do? 
to have eternal life? What must you do to be as… Well, you know the commandments. And he takes it easy on him. He gives him the second half, the stuff that you can see, right? 1 John 4 says, how can you love your Father in heaven if you don't love your neighbor, your brothers and sisters whom you can see? So Jesus gives him that half of the law, the stuff that you can see. Don't commit adultery. Don't steal. Don't bear false witness. And he says, teacher, I've kept all of these from my youth. In his eyes, at least, he has already met God's gold standard of doing what God commands. Now, he's wrong. We know he's wrong. No man has kept all of God's commands. Even if outwardly we seem to, inwardly our desires are all messed up. Our motives are all, all askew. But Jesus recognizes simply explaining that fact won't bring it home. The man's too confident in what he's accomplished. And so Jesus, loving the man, having compassion on him. One thing you lack. One thing. You go, take everything you have and sell it. Don't worry about what you get for it. Don't haggle over the price. Just sell it. Give it to the poor. And then you'll have riches in heaven. And then come and take up your cross and follow me while I go take up mine. And the man immediately grieved. Why? Mark tells us he had great possessions. Now, we don't know the man's heart, so we can't tell precisely what that means. It might have meant that he valued his wealth more than he valued eternal life and the kingdom of God, right? He had worked so hard for it, and this was the treasure that he valued above all else. It might instead mean that he trusted his wealth a lot. He, he trusted Jesus, but not alone. He wanted a backup plan. He wasn't willing to, to work without a net. He wasn't willing to trust Jesus without having something else to fall back on. Whether it was that he loved his wealth or he trusted his wealth, it comes down to his wealth being an idol. It was something he trusted instead of Jesus. And rejecting that idol was a higher price than he was willing to pay. And so he walked away. Eternal life rejected. But Jesus wasn't just speaking for his sake, he was speaking for ours. Does that mean that we're called to, to sell everything, to impoverish ourselves? Well, maybe. Maybe. It really depends on your heart. You see, this is really a call to examine our hearts. To what are you committed? What is it that means the world to you? When someone asks you to introduce yourself, what is it that you use to define you? And does that come before child of God and citizen of the kingdom? What is it that you trust? When people turn against you, when things start getting difficult, 
Do you dig deep in yourself? Do you rest on your friends? Do you trust in your family? What is it that you rest in? Where do you set your hope? Because if what you value or what you trust is not Christ and Christ and Christ alone, that's what you need to get rid of. That's what He's calling you to cast off. And if that's your money, if that's your possessions, well then get rid of it. If that's your position, if that's your power, if that's your authority, get rid of it. Because that is the thing that you're holding as an idol instead of Christ. And remember that we can enter the kingdom of God only, only, only as children. We enter the kingdom of God not because we've been a success in business. We enter the kingdom of God not because we've had a sufficient number of children. We enter the kingdom of God not because we use Christian schools or because we're homeschoolers. We enter the kingdom of God not because we're Americans. We enter the kingdom of God by trusting Jesus, by resting in the Father's love only if we with all our wisdom and our skills and our possessions become insignificant, only if we're resting entirely in Christ, no crossed fingers, no backup plans, only then can we know that we're members of the kingdom. And that is what we need to show these children of ours. They are members of God's covenant in Christ from the very moment of their conception. That's what they were assured at their baptism. That's in fact why we baptized them. But being in the covenant doesn't give automatic entrance into the kingdom. We enter the kingdom only by faith in Christ. Only by trusting wholeheartedly without reservation in Him. And whatever would compete with Christ, that means we need to cast that off. We need to show them what it means. Not just to be members of the covenant. Not just to, to come into church and sing the songs and know when to stand and when to sit. We need to show them what it means to truly trust our Savior. And that means that when things get hard, or when we get sick, or when someone we love dies, we turn to the Lord. We rest in Him. We find our hope in Him. And when something earthly passes away from us, we lose our job, the stock market crashes, we don't become inordinately torn apart, but we fall to our knees and we say, the Lord has given and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And we show them what it means to trust. Now, of course, Jesus didn't have this conversation with the rich young man in a vacuum. It happened on the street, his disciples all around him. And Jesus wants them to learn from this interaction, so he makes this remark in verse 23, how hard it is for those who have riches to enter the kingdom of God. And his disciples are astonished by what he says. And so he says it again. Children, how hard it is for those who trust in riches to enter the kingdom of God. And then to be sure they get the full impact of what he's saying. Jesus gives a graphic illustration. He says, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Now, that's hard. And so, throughout the ages, men have sought to soften it, 
Well, what, what he really meant, there was, there was a little gate in the city wall of Jerusalem that was, it was small, it was made for a man, and so they called it the eye of a needle. And, uh, you know, you could fit a camel through it, but it'd be pretty hard. You'd have to take everything off of him, all the stuff that he was carrying, and, and you'd have to get him down practically on his knees. You'd have to practically push him through. Doable, but really hard. Uh-huh. That's why there's no historical record of that. It didn't exist. They're just trying to soften it so that it's possible. You just have to try really hard. And others will say, well... This is really a translational problem. He didn't say camelon, camel. He said camelon, which means rope. Well, that, that fixes things. Try to, try to thread a hemp rope through a needle. See, all of those efforts to soften this are foolish. Jesus didn't mean for it to be something soft and easy. He said it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God, and they were greatly astonished saying, well, who then can be saved? Do you know why they were so greatly astonished? Because they saw a rich man and they saw someone who had been richly blessed by God. God gave them that understanding. Back in Deuteronomy, He called them to trust Him and to love Him and to demonstrate their love for Him by their obedience. And He said, if you obey Me, if you show your faith by your obedience, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to bless you in the city and I'm going to bless you in the country. I'm going to bless you in the field and I'm going to bless you in your business. I'm going to make you lenders to many and borrowers of none. And so they saw that a a rich person is someone who has been blessed abundantly by God. And they said, well, if someone who's been blessed this much can't enter the kingdom of God, how can anyone? And that was the right conclusion. With men, it is impossible. For man, acting on his own, even the most blessed among them, have no hope of entering the kingdom of God. It is unattainable by anything we have or anything we do to enter into the kingdom of God. But, Jesus says, with God, all things are possible. You see, the kingdom of God has different standards. Wealth won't buy you a ticket. Your skill is useless, your persuasiveness is laughable, power and influence, friends in high places, they all mean nothing. The only way into this kingdom is to trust the Lord. Only if Christ has made satisfaction for all your sins, only if His righteousness and holiness are imputed to you, only if He clothes you with all of His goodness and removes all of your badness, only then can you enter the kingdom of God. There is no other way. And here's the irony, folks. He who loses, wins. He who gives everything for the sake of Christ receives everything through Christ. But he who holds tight to that little that he has now, to his power, to his influence, to his possessions, he who holds firmly to even a little bit, he loses Christ and everything with him. And so he says, don't hold on to all that stuff. Call out to your Savior. Rest in your Father's arms. Trust in Him and in Him you have absolutely everything you need. This is the lesson that we've agreed to teach Asher this morning. And every one of these other children. 
when we're facing difficult times, when we're lying in the hospital, when we're under hospice care, our calling is to remind them that we have everything we need because we have Christ. Our calling is to demonstrate that our confidence is firm even when the whole world is shaking, even when we read the front page and we can't believe the unmitigated foolishness of what's happening among our elected officials. We're not shaken. We're not disproportionately saddened, but we trust because we know in whose arms we lie. That's what we teach them. And that's how we must live. With men, it is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. May this be the lesson that our children here see, recognize in us. Amen. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you We thank you because we know our weakness. We know that our wisdom is foolishness and our riches are poverty in comparison with that which would get us into your kingdom because every one of our righteous deeds is stained by sin. Every bit of our uh, possession is dependent on you to give it. We have nothing to offer. But Jesus has offered everything for us. And for this we are profoundly grateful. And we pray, Father, that you would humble us and teach us to rest in nothing but your Son for our salvation. And to be confident that you as our Heavenly Father have orchestrated all things for our good and that through your Spirit you will never leave us or forsake us even for a moment. Teach us to thus trust in you and enable us to set that example before our youngest of children that they might come to see how blessed they are to trust in you. Father, we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.